So we've all seen the signs along the road, companies are hiring. Uh, you see it in the windows of shops or the advertising that's online. Um, companies are offering money for at least entry-level jobs like never before, as they're desperate for people to come back to work. Recently, one of my neighbors told me that a school district up north is offering a $2,500 signing bonus for bus drivers if they will just stay on for 90 days. Um, restaurants in particular, like I mentioned, have found it difficult to keep workers. I was ordering pizza about a week ago, and the manager said we had six people walk out on us yesterday. Every worker I have is here tonight, and I need them to come back tomorrow. Uh, and they're willing to pay for folks to come in and work. We need work in order to make the world go round. And it's not just occupational work that involves a paycheck. We also need the non-occupational work to take place. So, for example, you work at paying your bills, and somebody depends on you doing that paying of bills, which isn't part of your paycheck. It's just you got to do this work at home. Somebody depends on your bills being paid. Our family needs to be at work cleaning the house and doing chores. Yesterday, a pressure valve on my water heater was leaking, so I took the boys downstairs with YouTube, and one boy was holding the YouTube screen, hitting the play and pause button, and the other one had his hand on the wrench, and he was turning uh, a pipe with me, and we need that work to take place if we're going to have hot water and if we're going to get our showers. Yesterday, Chris and I were working out front, planting some dune grass just to make things a little more beautiful and attractive in front of our house. So whether it's occupational work that you earn a paycheck for, or whether it's work of some other form, like I'm mentioning, work that just has to happen in order for life to go on, we all toil at work in order to get things done. Today, we're starting this series in the book of Ecclesiastes, so I hope you've got your Bible. Please turn there if you do or if you haven't already, and if you're still looking for it, it's right after the book of Psalms or Proverbs. You open your Bible kind of in the middle, there's Psalms, and then go a little bit towards the back, and you'll hit this small book of Ecclesiastes. A few brief introductory remarks about the book. Um, we believe that it's written by Solomon. His name is never mentioned here. But we say Solomon because verse 1 says that he's the son of David and the king of Jerusalem. So that was Solomon. Uh, Solomon is an interesting character. Uh, like I mentioned, his dad was David. David was a man of war. He was able to push the boundaries of Israel out far. He was able to defeat the Philistines, uh, neighboring countries and cities that were a threat to Israel at the time. Um, you remember he was a man of war so that he couldn't build the temple. Now Solomon, his son, has been set up pretty well by David. David did all the heavy lifting, and now Solomon gets to enjoy this prosperous reign that David has set him up for. Uh, not only is this a season of prosperity for, David, or for Solomon, but you remember early on in Solomon's reign, Solomon asked God for one particular thing. And he asked him for wisdom. And God granted Solomon a special measure of wisdom. He used that wisdom to establish business with surrounding countries. 
He funneled in all kinds of resources and built gardens and the temple and fortifications in Israel. People came from all over the neighboring regions to see Solomon and see his wisdom in practice. In Israel's history at this time, it's really an economic boom. Um, she was located, Israel that is, at the crossroads of commerce. So you've got the Far East coming to Israel. This way, I guess, from your perspective, Far East coming. And then up there is Europe and countries up there. Down there is Africa. And, and Israel is sitting right in the middle of all of that. And it was a great time for the nation of Israel. Money was, so to say, growing on trees. So what would Solomon, the wise Solomon, have to say about all of these prosperous times? What are the good things going on that Solomon can talk about? You might expect him to come out of his palace, stand on his balcony, and address the nation with, you know, the latest GDP, job growth numbers, here's how our economy is doing. Instead, here's Solomon opening up the book of Ecclesiastes to the nation during this time of prosperity and verse 2 is just like a bombshell. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, the book starts abruptly for the purpose of getting our attention. It's like Solomon just pulled the plug on the band. It's quiet. The parade just came to a halt. The celebration has stopped. And Solomon is shouting out about all the things that he sees in front of him, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. This is all vanity. It's meant to get our attention, especially when times are going well, especially because this was written for Israel, the people of God. So as we look at this, even as the people of God Christians, this jolts us. So several questions to form our outline today. I have four questions that will guide us through our sermon. I'll give them to you while we go through it. The first question is this, what does vanity mean? What does vanity mean? Uh, Solomon uses that term approximately 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now just to be clear, this vanity is not the same way that we would use the term vanity today. When you think of a vain person, you think they're puffed up like a peacock. Uh, Solomon is not saying that. He's not talking about pride. The word vanity comes from the Hebrew word hebel, just in case you're interested, which many of your Bibles discuss at the bottom in a footnote. And it refers to this idea of breath or mist or vapor. In Michigan, we're all too familiar with the wintry months when we see our breath come out of our mouths, and it rises up slowly in the air, and then it disappears. It's here for a brief span, and then it's gone. We also know that you can't bottle up this vapor. You can't bottle up breath. You can't bottle up wind. It's not only temporary in the sense that it comes out and it's gone, but it's never able to be held onto in a very permanent way. You've heard the phrase, it's like chasing after the wind. You can't run and bottle up the wind. And if you were to see somebody actually intending to do that, you could imagine that at some point they are going to feel the frustration of being unable to do that. They're unable to grasp this 
and it leads to a measure of frustration. Another characteristic about this breath or this vanity or this mist is that it lacks value. Um, You've never seen anyone actually bottle up fog off the lake and try to sell it. Um, Now, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see this phrase, vanity, vanity of vanities, a number of times. And depending on which context we're going to see it in, it's going to be drawing on these different understandings that sort of form an umbrella to the word, this temporary, this worthless, this frustration uh, understanding of vanity. So that's something that you have to keep in mind as we go through the, the book. Question number two is this. If Solomon is saying vanity of vanities, what is vain? What is it that is actually vain here? Well, as we proceed into verse 3, uh, we're asking the question, Solomon, what are you saying is actually lacking in value during a time of economic prosperity? What are you talking about? What is, what is actually worthless? Well, he takes us into verse 3, and he answers this question in the form of a question. He answers by saying, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's talking about our work. There's a, a vanity to the work that we do, whether it's occupational work or whether it's non-occupational work. And this is where immediately when you start the book, you start to experience a tension. Because as we read our Bibles, we go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God created us to be workers. Here, Adam, here, Eve, this garden This area is a responsibility. Now exercise dominion, be workers. And this is before sin even took place. So Solomon, how can you look at everything that we're doing in life and say work is pointless or meaningless when God himself creating us in his image has said, now be workers, carry out the work that I've given to you. Well, let's dig into it a little further couple of phrases or words that we'll want to understand. The first one that we see here in verse 3 is the word gain. Uh, What does he mean by this term gain? What does a man gain by all of his toil? Well, when you run a business, you have all kinds of expenses that have to be paid for. You have employees who need to be paid overhead, taxes, all that stuff. At the end of the year, you want to see that your work provided a sense of gain. You wanted to see some sort of advantage at the end of 2021 in terms of your numbers that you didn't have before you entered into the year. Solomon's not speaking in terms of finances here. He's talking about us as individuals. What gain, what advantage, what did you get ahead in all of your work? And so as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about a sense of personal fulfillment here. What kind of gain, what kind of personal fulfillment do you get from your work? There's another phrase that we need to really latch on to here. We'll spend a little bit of time with this. We're going to come back to gain in a little bit, by the way. The other phrase is under the sun. When he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
Now again, as you read through the book, this is a phrase that comes up many times, approximately 29 times. So when you see phrases that get repeated in a book, you, you want to be asking the question, what's the significance of that phrase? Um, Sidney Grudanus, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says this about under the sun. He says, under the sun refers to living in this world without taking God into account. Under the sun refers to living in this world without taking God into account. Meaning, there's, there's not a thought about God as you apply yourself to this work. So life under the sun is, here's the sun, it's the highest object. I, I wake up, I go out my door in the morning and I see everything there is. And there's the sun, the highest object in my life. There's nothing beyond that when we say life under the sun. Now, it's life that is, at least for the people of God, willfully ignorant of him. Willfully ignorant of God, putting on blinders and just having no vision for God being a part of what I'm doing here. Now, we can live with these blinders on, especially in a materialistic culture. And Solomon is saying, if the people of God who are experiencing this economic boom are living simply as life under the sun, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanity, this is all vanity. It's pointless. This is not just an Ecclesiastes theme. This is a theme that gets carried throughout Scripture where you see Jesus saying, hey, pick your eyes up off what you're doing and see that there is more to this than just the sun. There's God, and you are to be doing all of this, occupational or non-occupational, with God in sight. So Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So you think about all that the world could give you, and you put it on one scale over here, and then you've got the balance with another scale over here. And Jesus asked the question, you could get all of the material wealth in the world and place it on this scale. And he goes, hey, that's life under the sun if you don't consider the eternal, eternal nature of your soul. Like your soul is accountable to God. You have to have eyes that go beyond the world here. You have to see God. And he's saying, man, when you get to this point over here where all of your eggs are in this basket of just materialism in the world, vanity of vanities. He goes on in Luke chapter 12 to talk about this parable. It says, Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So here's somebody who did really well for themselves. He's got all these extra crops and he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Where's his perspective? Under the sun. That's where he's focused. Look what Jesus says. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared. Now whose will they be? You see, there's so much more to life than just life under the sun. 
You've got an eternal soul that is accountable to God. You are accountable to God. And Jesus is saying in these verses here, look, get your eyes off the horizontal level. Get your eyes out of the life under the sun. And you're going to have to see that there is life in relationship with God. Now, if you keep this phrase, life under the sun, in mind as we go through Ecclesiastes, it's going to clear up a lot of misconceptions about the book. Uh, a lot of confusion. You will see that life under the sun is meant to be lived in contrast with life under the hand of God. And Solomon brings this together at the end of chapter 2, which we'll see next week. But let, let me just show you briefly Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. There it is again, life under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Again, he, he says, here's the sphere of it. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Okay, here, so here's somebody who's lived life under the sun, just had this limited perspective. Now look at the contrast. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. I thought you just said, Solomon, that all of my toil under the sun is vain. And he did. But now he's bringing toil into a new sphere and look at what sphere he's bringing it into. This also I saw, this toil is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Did you see the two spheres lining up against each other? Both had toil in them. One was under the sun. The other was life under the hand of God or from the hand of God. And Solomon said, this is the only place that I can find enjoyment in my work. If life is lived under the sun... If your work is all about materialistic gain, trying to get ahead, trying to find significance in the next job promotion, you're eventually going to find out that you have a net gain of zero. Uh, during the music practice, they were reading the scriptures, and we read verses 1 through 11, and Rich sits down on the step up here after this, and he says, and that's life you eventually get to a place in life where you realize this is it. All the sort of commercialized dreams of finding joy in materialistic wealth, after you've run on that hamster wheel long enough, you're like, this never ends. I was sitting with some neighbors last night and a guy probably 70 or so, and he was asking, so what's the sermon on tomorrow? And I told him Ecclesiastes, so we started chatting about it. And he says, it's true. Like, when do people realize that the little lure that's out in front of them of saying, hey, hey, 
more, more, more is fulfilling, when are you going to realize that that's just an empty pipe dream? That does not lead to personal fulfillment and gain. So let's circle back around to gain for just a minute so that this presses in. Again, what do we mean by gain? Isn't changing my child's diaper and folding laundry, isn't that benefiting my family? Keeps the rash off the bum, all of that stuff. Isn't working in a high-flying investment company in New York to get helpful companies off the ground, isn't that a thrill? Isn't that a gain? And in your mind, keeping... Keep that picture there. Here's Israel, this economic boom that's happening. Solomon has led them into a time of prosperity. Their Dow Jones is hitting record highs every day. People are coming home from their booths with a wad of cash in their hands saying, hey, a trader from the Far East on his way to Egypt, you wouldn't believe it. He wants to buy up all of our olives and grapes and he's put a contract down for next year's harvest 20% more than what I'm asking. Look at all this money. I mean, Isn't that gain? Solomon is saying, not here. Eventually, that is going to be like mist or vapor. Comes back the next year, it's the same thing, same thing, same thing. It's a net gain of zero in terms of personal fulfillment. So let me illustrate this personally. I've shared this with you in the past. When I was graduating from high school, my parents, in so many words, told me, we can't help you with finances for college. So that was their way of saying, get out there and go to work. So my friend, his dad owned a road construction company, and I'm praying, God, I need some income to pay for college. And so Brent's dad hires me in the gravel pit where... We worked 79 hours each week. That's the check-in, check-out time. And the first paycheck was like bringing home the bacon, baby. Like this was good money. I had never made so much money in my life, and I thought, this feels good. Second week, not as exciting, but still exciting. Third week, it starts to taper off. About halfway through the summer, keep in mind I've just graduated from high school, and it's summertime. Where are all my friends? They're out at Lake Marion having a good time. They're at somebody's house enjoying the get-togethers in the evening. About midway through the summer, I'm asking the question, what is the point of all of this work and money? I mean, the, the, the fulfillment of that paycheck now that was great like a month and a half ago isn't so enjoyable to me anymore. I'd rather be going after other things in order to fulfill me. So where's the next hamster wheel that I can jump on? And it hit me while I was shoveling out a conveyor belt right next to a rock crusher, just with a bad attitude, just scooping out. And Solomon could have put me into Ecclesiastes. Here's the look of vanity on somebody's face. It's worthless. All of a sudden it hit me. This job was an answer to my prayer. I had asked God to help me out with college. And here he is giving me a shovel in my hand to actually answer the prayer and provide for me. Now, the first half of the summer, even as a Christian, I was ignorant of life from the hand of God. I was simply living under the sun. 
And on that hamster wheel, there was the thrill at first, but after a while, a net gain of zero. Until God opened my eyes midway through the summer, and it became about a relationship with me and him. And him saying, this is life under the hand of God. This is God's good hand that is giving you gifts so that you can enjoy this now as a gift from him. And when that happened, all of a sudden, the spirit of God who indwells us and the truth that God has given to us all of a sudden says, this work now is meaningful. There's gain in all of this. My job had significance to it because it was about my relationship with him. Until you see your toil in life as actually being a gift from God, it will be of no gain, of no deep personal meaning. It will be of no satisfaction to you. And we're going to see more of that next week. Now, here is part of my pastoral sort of caution, concern. I do think something happens to people in their mid-30s where they've had enough time on the hamster wheel. And they begin to see this is life. This is it. Because our world and Satan who is behind the message of the world is so good at pumping materialism into our thinking saying, there's going to be more for you. You just keep striving. And what Satan is aiming to do is keep you distracted from joy and fulfillment that can come from God. And about 38, 40, 45, somewhere around there, give or take a few years, adults start thinking, what is the point of all of this? And oftentimes what you see is a lot of frustration and people stepping back saying, well, I can't find fulfillment in this. I have to go find fulfillment, so I'll leave my marriage or I'll go have some sort of thrill or fling or uh, uh, it'll have to be another career or it's going to have to be this life move that I make because I can't be fulfilled over here. And Solomon is coming out to his balcony to all of us who are buying into that and saying, you're on the hamster wheel of vanity. You're not living life under the hand of God. You're not living life within the sphere of God's hand, looking at it as a relationship, walking with him as it is through life, saying, okay, God, you're leading me into this and you have a purpose for my life for here and you're fulfilling needs in my life from your good hand in all of this. Is there ever time for a career change? Absolutely, there is. Is there ever time to, to make moves in life? Yes, as long as it's not sin. But in all of this, your perspective can't be just confined to this, this sphere over here of this is all there is. It's for the people of God, life from the hand of God where we're walking through life with him. So that leads us to a third question that this text answers for us, and that is, how does Solomon portray the vanity of work apart from God? How does Solomon sort of reinforce this thought for us about work and the vanity of it apart from God? Well, in verse 4, we'll move through this quickly. Uh, he says, let's look at human generations. Let's look at the cycle. Let's look at hamster wheels, if you will. Um, one generation goes, it's gone. Another generation pops up on the scene. The earth remains, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. That generation of your great-grandparents, they went away. You just moved up one rung on the ladder. 
a new generation put their foot on the bottom rung. You're moving up to the top rung. Someday you'll be off the ladder. That generation will be up there. The earth remains the same. Keep spinning along. I know two names of my great-grandparents. That's it. My kids don't know them, so in effect, it's gone. Life is the same. Our names are going to be forgotten. Our bones are going to be buried in a box beneath a gravestone. I don't know, 80, 90 years from now, somebody will drive through the cemetery and say, Burkholz, oh, that's an interesting name. Just keep right on going. Second picture that he gives us is the rising of the sun and the going down of the sun. He says in verse 5, it rises, it goes down. And what does it do after it goes down? It hastens back to the place where it rises again. Here's the cycle again. Cycle again. It's just cyclical over and over again. A third picture concerns the wind in verse 6, where he says the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And guess what happens? It just returns. Here comes the wind again. There's a fourth picture in verse 7. Solomon could look out over his kingdom. He could see all the rivers, the streams. Perhaps he was thinking about the Jordan River that flows south down into the Dead Sea. And he says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So here you've got this sea that keeps getting fed by more stuff, more stuff. But the sea never overflows its banks. It never fills up over the mountains and spills over and, you know, is full. Same cycle over and over again. So nothing climactic has happened in these categories. And from a big picture perspective, it's just, it's mundane. So in verses 8 through 11, Solomon restates his thesis here by saying, all things are wearisome. It's another way of saying it's kind of vain. A man cannot utter it. It's repetitive in nature. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Somebody comes along and says, see, this is new. Solomon says, no, we've seen this before, just packaged different. It's kind of like going to a Chinese restaurant. It's always the same food, just packaged differently from restaurant to restaurant, you know? I love the, the noodles. They just get a different package from one place to the next. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So Solomon's like, hey, all this stuff is going to be not even remembered. Um, you're going hard after things, but really, nobody's going to remember your legacy even. So let's test this out on us. Next year, I don't know if you know this, but 2022 is the 100-year birthday of Lakeshore Baptist. So think about this. 100 years ago, in 1922, uh, a group of people were getting together, and they were forming a church. And at the time, there must have been a pastor. And there must have been a group of people, and they probably had a morning sermon, and afterwards they celebrated with cupcakes or ice cream or something like that. Now, other than a couple of you who have done some historical digging around, do any of us know the name of the first pastor of Lakeshore Baptist? No, it wasn't Wayne. (laughs) 
I'm glad you mentioned his name. I'm going to keep that one instead of mine. <laughs> no, it wasn't even Wayne Mary, although he's been around for a while. <laughs> uh, the name of that first pastor, I don't even know. I can't tell you. I couldn't find it between sermon writing and this morning. So someday, if the Lord does not return, people are going to go through the history books of our church and they're going to look at pictures. Let's say it's 100 years from now. Hey, that's when Lakeshore was meeting in 2021 at a Labor Day picnic on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, who, who's that guy? Who's that, to use our pastor's name, who's that short guy? <laughs> I can't find his name. Oh, that's Wayne Mary. Uh, who's he? I don't know. Okay. Can you pass the cupcakes, please? Or who's that guy out on the soccer field pitching the, the ball? What, are they, what is that game anyway? Do they call it kickball? No, his name's Nate. Yep, never even heard of him. He's gone. There's no remembrance of anything. So where is Solomon going with all of this? His opening section here, here's a big idea. Apart from God, whatever you apply your hand to, it will be meaningless. Apart from God... Your work is meaningless. It will have a net gain of zero. Solomon's coming out to the nation and looking at everything that he's, that's going on. He's got the gift of wisdom, and he's saying, this is vain. Now, God is saying that because he's inspiring this. So God is looking down at the prosperous times, and he's saying, there's vanity here. But it begs a question for us now with point number four. How does a Christian find gain, not vanity, in our toil? How does a Christian find gain, not vanity, in our toil? Well, two answers for us. Number one is this. We have to be aware of the difference of life under the sun and life from the hand of God. You have to be aware of the difference between life under the sun and the significance and the meaning of that and life under the hand of God. Life under the sun, living in this world without taking God into any account, is truly vain and it's meaningless. However, life under the hand of God, meaning we're walking in relationship with him, everything that has been given to us is providentially handed over, sovereignly handed over into our lives. And James 1.17 says, this is a gift. So whatever you have right now, it's like me shoveling out dirt underneath the conveyor belt. All of a sudden, God opens my eyes to realize, hey, wait a second, this particular moment right now, this opportunity that you have, it is actually a gift that God has given to you and even a stewardship that you would carry out for his glory. This is meaningful then because it's not some sort of horizontal perspective. It's all about God and you're working for him in this moment. Second is this then. Pursue the joy of meaningful work by your relationship to God. We recognize the difference between the two spheres now. Now we're saying, okay, press into the sphere of life from the hand of God. Now pursue the joy of meaningful work in your relationship to God. 
where does this pursuit of joy in your relationship with God begin? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, and the new has come. So when you enter into a relationship with God, God opens your eyes to see the significance of life with him. He says you were an old creation and you were confined to this sphere over here in terms of your understanding. But when you come to Christ as your savior and you're indwelt by the spirit, you are a new creation and there's more to life. And I know that many of you understand that. At times, God comes in and says, hey, let me show you more. And you're like, thank you, Lord. You lifted up my eyes off this stuff here to see you above it. And now I'm walking through the stuff with you. And there's so much more meaning to this. Jesus, now in our relationship with him, says, as you walk with the Father, there are really two things that I want you to keep in mind. Two marching orders that will lead you into fulfillment. And the first one was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we go back to this and we say, okay, God, you've told me, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men. Work heartily unto the Lord. And notice this, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward You are serving the Lord Christ. God has led you into this, and how you fold your laundry, how you fill out the ledger, how you change the diaper, how you prepare sermons is not just limited to this. It's about a sacrifice of praise to God to who he is. I can do my work for God to God because he's put me there. Now, God has commanded us that we can love him through our work, but the second perspective is that we would also love our fellow man through our work. So this is the principle of neighborly love. Um, Martin Luther, in his book, The Bondage of the Will, he talks about before Christ, our perspective is that we are naturally bent into ourselves. We're naturally just thinking about ourselves all the time, thinking about our joy, thinking about our fulfillment in these things over here. So a business owner might provide a great product for the world, but in the end, apart from God, that business owner is thinking about himself through it all. But when a Christian who is a new creation is opened up and able to see the Lord, he or she is governed by something completely different. We're governed by the love that we have come to know through God in the gospel. We've been unbent, and instead of being bent in on ourselves when we do our work, we're straightened up with a view towards God, which allows us now to have a view of God and how he sees our fellow man. And he says, love your neighbor through your work. So if you're a teacher... You're not just seeing your students, you're seeing your students the way that God sees them and you're saying, okay, they're made in your image, they're my neighbor, and now this is an opportunity for me to love my neighbor by doing good teaching in the classroom. 
Or if you're wrapping up a burger at McDonald's, you're seeing the customer outside who needs food in their stomach to live. They're made in the image of God. And so it's not just some sort of mundane wrap up the wax paper, throw it down the steel table and it gets bagged out. You're able to say, hey, this is all part of how God loves that person. And so I'm going to do my work in such a way that has meaning or significance to it. So you're working your jobs, whether it's occupational or non-occupational, there are people all around you who are dependent on what you do. And when you have life from the hand of God, you're able to say, this work is meaningful. I'm, I'm lifted out of this vain vanity sense of work, and now there's a purpose to it all, and it's a way for you and I to love our neighbor. It's God loving your neighbor through you. God gets the praise and the glory, and you get back to say, hey, this is not a hamster wheel. This is about me walking in relationship with God. And so Solomon gets us thinking from the very beginning, where are you living? Where's your head these days? Is it life under the sun, or is it life under the hand of God? As Christians, we've been unbent now to see him, and we see this as a gift from God, and we can toil with meaning then. Let's pray.